Hello, I'm Eric Huang, and you're listening to Saint Podcast, a podcast about the always fascinating and often controversial lives of the saints. Saint Podcast is a history and culture podcast that traces the origins of the morality tales of the saints, or hagiographies, and how they continue to impact our lives today. This debut series of Saint Podcast is dedicated to martyrs, saints who died as a result of their beliefs. Over the next ten episodes, we'll hear about martyred saints ranging from a queen who bested the brightest minds of the Roman Empire, a saint who was swallowed alive by a dragon. Twin brothers who were both doctors, a gay icon, and many more. The second episode of Saint Podcast's Martyr series is about one of the most popular saints. He's the patron saint of pandemics, archers, outcasts, athletes, and law enforcement. He's one of the most depicted saints in art, and he's also a gay icon. This is the story of Saint Sebastian. Saint Sebastian was a third-century Roman citizen. Everything we know about him comes from four sources. The first is a fourth-century sermon delivered by Ambrose of Milan, a powerful bishop who was an extremely influential political figure. The second is a fifth-century book recounting a sermon called Passio Sancto Sebastiani, the Passion or Suffering of Saint Sebastian. Number three, the fourteenth-century Golden Legend. A book we encountered in the last episode, and will refer to often in Saint Podcast. The final source is the 1643 Acta Sanctorum, an encyclopedic collection of hagiographies in 68 volumes, created by two Jesuit monks. According to these sources, Sebastian was a Roman citizen born in the year 256 in Gallia Narbonensis, a Roman province in present-day south of France. It was a very wealthy place. The city of Marsella, Marseille today, was a prosperous port that transported luxury goods from all over the empire. All we know about Saint Sebastian's childhood is that he was born a Christian. By the time of Sebastian's birth, Christianity had grown from its roots as a radical Jewish sect to an influential, if feared, organization that had expanded throughout the Roman Empire. As a teenager, Sebastian moved to Milan to study. Milan had been the capital of the Roman Empire since Sebastian was only three years old. It was in Milan, or Mediolanum, as it was called back then, where Sebastian entered into military service. After some years as a soldier, he was promoted to the elite Praetorian Guard. The Praetorian Guard was the Roman Emperor's private fighting force. The unit was established by Augustus, the first emperor, in the year twenty-seven. The Praetorian Guards and their commander, the Praetorian Prefect, were very, very powerful. You needed their support to become and remain emperor. When regimes changed, the guards of the previous emperor were nearly always executed because their loyalty had to be beyond question. The average Praetorian Guard would have been supremely fit, seasoned fighters with numerous battles and kills under their belts. They would have been well into their thirties when joining the regime, according to the Golden Legend. Sebastian was 27 when he became a member of this guard. It's likely that the golden legend exaggerated Sebastian's age, making him nearly a decade younger than other recruits to emphasize his saintly supernatural talents. It's Sebastian's incredible skills as a warrior that make him the patron saint of law enforcement, soldiers, 
and athletes. Most Praetorian guards were from the equestrian class. The elite of Rome belonged to the senatorial class. They were the wealthiest of the empire, the rulers. At the lowest end were the plebeians, the common people. Praetorian guards hailed from the middle equestrian class, which was a property and slave-owning group like the senatorial families, but they worked, headed up businesses. They were called equites because they had their origin as members of the cavalry since the founding of Rome. Because Sebastian was a Praetorian guard, in fact he became Praetorian prefect, the commander later in life. We can assume he came from an equestrian family, not in the upper upper class, but very well-off landowners, nevertheless. The golden legend tells us that Sebastian joined the army in 283 during Carinus's reign as emperor. Early in his rule, Carinus led a successful campaign against the Quadi, a Germanic tribe making trouble in Gaul, the region where Sebastian is from. Sebastian distinguished himself in battle, and Carinus promoted him to the Praetorian Guard. In 285, Emperor Carinus was killed in what is today Serbia. It was during the Battle of the Margus against a rival to the throne named Diocletian, who became Emperor of Rome after Carinus's death. When Diocletian took power, he did something very unusual. He kept all of Carinus's Praetorian guards, including the emperor's prefect, Titus Claudius Aurelius Aristobulus. Diocletian also retained Aristobulus as his consul. This was highly irregular, if not dangerous. Emperors who rose to power after a coup always executed, or at the very least exiled, all of the previous regime's staff for fear of reprisals and rebellion. The irregularity might be explained by a theory that Carinus was killed by his own Praetorian prefect, by Aristobulus himself. The theory goes that Aristobulus schemed with Diocletian to bring about Carinus's downfall. If this is true, it makes sense that Diocletian would then retain Aristobulus as his own Praetorian prefect and consul, since they were in league together all along. So to summarize, Aristobulus was Emperor Carinus's Praetorian prefect. When Carinus was killed and deposed in 285, Aristobulus became Praetorian prefect for the new emperor, Diocletian. According to the Golden Legend, Sebastian was promoted to the Praetorian Guard under Carinus. In 285, after Carinus was killed, Sebastian joined Diocletian's Praetorian Guard. Like Aristobulus, his life was spared when the new emperor took power. We're told that Sebastian then saved Diocletian's life in battle. As a reward for bravery and skills as a warrior, Diocletian promoted Sebastian to commander. Sebastian was now Praetorian prefect. The legend of Saint Sebastian mirrors the story of the historic figure Aristobulus. Many emperors had more than one prefect, though there is no historic record listing Sebastian as Diocletian's prefect or Carinus's prefect. Sebastian's rise in rank to Praetorian Guard marked the beginnings of the Great Persecution, the final but most severe persecution of Christians in ancient Roman times. Periods of Christian persecution arose when emperors needed a scapegoat to blame for a bad harvest, unsuccessful military campaigns, anything to divert the attention of the public away from a failure. The first of these persecutions was in the year 64. Nero, one of history's most terrible tyrants, was emperor then. A colossal fire destroyed much of Rome. When it was finally extinguished, Nero built the Domus Aurea, the Golden House. 
It was a magnificent palace a mile long, built on the remains of the neighborhoods obliterated by the fire. Rumors circulated that Nero himself had caused the fire. Allegedly, he was seen playing a fiddle or harp, singing while the city burned. This is likely a fabrication. To stop the rumors, Nero blamed the disaster on Christians. The extent and the details of Christian persecutions under Nero and his overall reputation as a terror have been widely disputed. Many accounts of atrocities come from the ruling elite who did not think him fit to be emperor. And the accounts contrast greatly with the records that show how popular he was with the plebeian class. Historians of the time likely exaggerated accounts of the persecutions as a way of rewriting Nero's legacy. In the years immediately following Jesus' crucifixion, it was the general public that demanded authorities round up and punish Christians. Nearly 300 years later, in Sebastian's time, it was the government itself that feared them. Monotheism, or belief in only one God, threatened the status quo. For Christians, Jesus was the human manifestation of the one true God in a time when the vast majority of Roman citizens worshipped many gods from all over the empire. Christians refused to participate in local pagan festivals, which often included celebrations in honor of the cult of emperors, many of whom had been deified and were worshipped as gods. The Christians were also threatening because of a well-organized structure. Their hierarchy was not unlike the empire itself. First, there were dioceses or groups of parishes run by deacons who attended to the poor. Then there were presbyters who, along with the deacons, were precursors to today's priests. Presbyters reported into bishops and later archbishops and cardinals who looked after even larger geographic areas and ultimately reported into the Bishop of Rome whom we now call the Pope. The demographics of the average Christian had also changed. In its infancy, Christianity was a religion of slaves and women, the dispossessed. In the third century, Christians counted senatorial families in their ranks, wealthy, educated men, Roman men. About 10% of the empire's population at this time was Christian. In cities where Christians were the most numerous, they counted for up to a quarter of the population and many felt a stronger allegiance to the church than to the emperor, donating vast sums of money that no longer filled imperial coffers. This was most evident in the Eastern Empire, in Judea, Syria, modern-day Turkey, Greece, and Egypt, where Christianity first took root. And the religion was spreading quickly. A simple message of good works in exchange for a heavenly afterlife was far more seductive than sacrificing to capricious gods who were just as likely to punish devotees as they were to reward them. Emperor Diocletian himself wasn't that bothered by Christians. He employed many in key government positions. And even though Diocletian was devoted to Jupiter, the Roman name for Zeus, he was tolerant of other religions. Like most pagans, he acknowledged the existence of many gods even if he didn't worship them himself. It was Diocletian's general Galerius who perceived Christians as a threat. In 299, after Galerius's successful defeat of the Sasonian Empire, Rome's mortal enemies, the Persians, he and Diocletian visited an oracle to divine the future. But the oracle was blocked. It seemed as if the impious on earth were stopping messages from the Olympian gods. Galerius was said to have noticed a handful of servants in the imperial household making the sign of the cross during the divination. 
he concluded it was these impious Christians who thwarted the oracle. So every servant, every soldier, staff member, and resident of the imperial household was commanded to immediately make sacrifice to the Roman gods. If they didn't, they were dismissed, not arrested or killed, but discharged from duty. That was the extent of it until three years later. In the year 301, Diocletian and his retinue were in Egypt when several Manichaeans, followers of the Iranian-born god Mani, were denounced on charges of sedition. Along with Christianity, Manichaeism was one of the largest monotheistic religions of the world at the time, spreading from China to Europe. They were Christian-like and challenged Roman traditions. Plus, the religion had its origins in Persia, Rome's mortal enemy. The Manichaeans were violently suppressed with destruction of property and executions. This was sort of a dry run for the Christian persecution to come. On the 23rd of February in the year 303, Diocletian burnt down the Church of Nicomedia, a house of Christian worship that overlooked the emperor's residence. The emperor then posted the first of four empire-wide edicts against Christians. All Christian churches were to be burnt to the ground, Christian gatherings were now forbidden. The edict was strictly enforced in the Eastern Empire, where the general Galerius was now emperor. When Christians in the East staged acts of defiance, the persecutions became violent. Additional laws were passed that led to arrests and executions. In the Western provinces, the orders were essentially ignored. At this time, Britannia was ruled by Flavius Valerius Constantinus, whom we know today as Constantine the Great. Like his counterparts in other Western territories, Constantine disregarded the edicts. When he became emperor in 306, he'd become the first Christian emperor, and in less than a hundred years, Christianity would become the official religion of the entire Roman Empire. So this was the climate in which Sebastian served as Praetorian prefect for Emperor Diocletian. The Great Persecution was just beginning. Christianity was no longer tolerated in the Eastern Empire. In fact, if you were found out to be a Christian, you were discriminated against, even violently attacked or killed. So Sebastian kept his religion a secret. He did this partially to protect his own life, but more importantly, to covertly help Christians who were being tortured and executed. Two such condemned were the twins Marcellian and Marcus. When the twins' loved ones begged them to renounce Christianity to save themselves, Sebastian made an impassioned speech. Dying for God was an honor and a promise of life everlasting. As he spoke, a light from the sky shone down upon him. Seven angels appeared, leading a child, who kissed Sebastian, saying, You will always be with me. All who were present converted to Christianity. This included Zoe, wife of the man in whose house the twins were imprisoned. She was mute. According to the golden legend, she regained her voice once she converted. Unfortunately, everyone was executed by the authorities. The twins were run through with a lance, their parents beheaded. Zoe was tortured to death with pincers, the rest burnt at the stake. Sebastian had failed to save their lives, but he had saved their immortal souls. It was now the year 286. And because of this incident with the twins, Sebastian had been outed as a Christian. He was brought before Emperor Diocletian, stripped of his rank, and condemned to die. The Praetorian guards refused to kill their former commander, however, 
all put down their weapons and converted to Christianity. They were promptly executed. The emperor then had Sebastian tied to a post. A company of archers, mercenaries from Mauritania in modern-day Algeria, raised their bows. The golden legend says they shot at him till he was as full of arrows as an urchin is full of pricks, and thus left him there for dead. An urchin is a hedgehog, and pricks are the hedgehog's spines. The reference to archers from Mauritania is pejorative. They're cast as degenerates, foreigners and pagans, the type of heretics who would murder a Christian like Sebastian. In art, the archers take on the style of dress of whomever the most powerful other of the time was, ranging from Goths to Turks to Protestants. Most works of art depict this scene in Sebastian's life, stripped to the waist, tied to a tree or post, with a muscular torso shot through with arrows. And it's because of the frequency of this depiction that many believe Sebastian died from the arrow wounds. He survived. A woman named Irene found Sebastian. With the help of her maid, Irene nursed him back to health. For two years, Sebastian convalesced with Irene. When he recovered, he immediately confronted Diocletian, demanding that the emperor cease the great persecution and convert. Enraged that Sebastian was still alive, Diocletian ordered him arrested, then beaten to death with cudgels in the Hippodrome. This time, no one came to Sebastian's aid. His lifeless body was thrown into the Cloaca Maxima, Rome's main sewer. The following night, a woman named Lucinda dreamt of Sebastian. The saint told her the whereabouts of his body and instructed her to fetch it. She was to arrange for a burial near the remains of the apostles, which is now the site of the St. Sebastian Basilica in Rome. Sebastian's body is said to be buried under a 17th century sculpture by an unknown artist. What remains of Sebastian's head is at the St. Sebastian Church in Ebersburg, Bavaria. The head is kept in an exquisite silver reliquary bust housed in a bejeweled case. It's revealed every year on St. Sebastian's feast day, the 20th of January, when the silver hat piece is removed to reveal a silver skull cap. This silver piece also comes off to reveal Sebastian's cranium bone. Biblical scholars are divided on the question of Sebastian's authenticity. His story has many holes. Firstly, the dates don't add up. The Great Persecution began in 303, five years after Sebastian's execution. Also, it's highly unlikely the events of the legend took place in Rome. Nearly all the Christian arrests occurred in the Eastern Empire. And since Diocletian lived in Nicomedia, a Greek city in what is now Turkey, he only visited Rome once in his reign, after Sebastian was dead. Despite the historical inaccuracies, the legend of St. Sebastian has persisted and flourished. No other saint has as many works of art devoted to them. Most often, he's depicted as a hairless, buff youth, tied to a post or tree, shot through with arrows. Sebastian is usually alone, accompanied only by angels. Sacred symbols also appear in the painting, a halo, a palm leaf symbolizing martyrdom, or just his eyes looking up to God in heaven. He's been depicted this way since around the 15th century during the Renaissance. 
art from this period is quite sensual. The earliest depictions of Saint Sebastian were very different. Firstly, he was always clothed. Secondly, he was depicted as a middle-aged man. The earliest surviving works are a sixth-century mosaic from the Basilica of Saint Apollinare Nuovo in Ravenna, and a seventh-century mosaic at the Church of Saint Peter in Rome. These are likely the most accurate portrayals of what the real-life Sebastian might have looked like just before he died. Not a twenty-something youth or a teenager, but a mature man with gray hair and a gray beard, a seasoned soldier. In fact, he looks an awful lot like George Clooney in the Ravenna mosaic. So, how did Saint Sebastian transform from an older, battle-weary warrior into a topless, barely legal pinup? The world has always been beset by waves of pandemics. When pandemics ravaged the ancient world. People made sacrifices to Eros or Cupid, the winged god of love. Back then, love was thought of as a madness, an illness Eros inflicted upon his victims with a bow and arrow. STDs were also meted out by the god to people who displeased him. Pandemic offerings were also made to Apollo, the god of the sun and also of disease. He too was an archer whose arrows delivered even more deadly illnesses than Eros. He was always portrayed, especially in sculpture, as the ideal male, young and athletic with a muscular physique. Because the arrow was an ancient symbol of disease, Saint Sebastian, who survived being shot with arrows, became associated with protection against disease. The link between disease and arrows was as natural to people of the ancient world as the pathogen emoji is for us. From about the 11th century onwards, the older, gray-haired warrior in the mosaics was replaced by a younger, bearded Sebastian, depicted as he was described in the Golden Legend, shot so full of arrows that they covered his bloody body like the spines on a hedgehog. These were often gruesome paintings, bloody, visceral displays of the mortal pain that the saint suffered. The archers who shot him were almost always present. Saint Sebastian, a protector against pandemics, can also be seen in paintings from the 14th century, kneeling before Jesus on a cloud in heaven, interceding for humans devastated by the Black Plague. The disease is represented as arrows aimed at the sinful by angel archers from clouds next to Jesus and Sebastian. As the medieval age gave way to the Renaissance, a renewed interest in classical Greek and Roman culture was all the rage. This included a re-examination of ancient gods and their depictions in art, and so the gruesome, arrow-ridden Sebastian started looking more and more like another protector against pandemics, the Greek god Apollo. Gone was the blood, gone were most of the arrows, and gone was the beard. In its place was a clean-shaven figure in the full flower of youth, with a muscular physique and an angel's face. People readily accepted Saint Sebastian's new guise because a youthful protector from pandemics, who looked like Apollo, was more believable, possibly more desirable, than one who was middle-aged. Sebastian's Apollo makeover was also due in large part to the choices artists like Michelangelo made when painting him. Today, these artists would likely identify as gay or queer, but these terms didn't exist then. Sexuality was much more fluid, especially in Italy. Where permissive classical attitudes came to the fore in the midst of this rebirth that was the Renaissance, 
It was tolerable for male citizens to cavort with whomever they wanted, male or female, as long as they were discreet. Women were never given this privilege. Artists from Da Vinci to Michelangelo, as well as many of their wealthy patrons, gravitated towards an Apollo-like Saint Sebastian because the iconography was so sensual. Sebastian's popularity also stemmed from a key plot point from his legend: he was closeted; he hid his identity. My favorite painting of Saint Sebastian is by Bronzino, an artist from Florence. Bronzino Sebastian sits in front of a dark wall, wrapped in a red cloth that encircles his back, covering his legs but falling open at the front to frame a naked torso and muscled arms. The work caused quite a scandal. There are no religious symbols in the painting to anchor the naked youth in a Christian setting. There's no halo, no angels. Sebastian isn't even in any pain at all. Instead, he lounges languidly, with one arrow piercing his left side. He fingers the head of a second arrow with one hand, whilst grasping the shaft with the other. He looks not up to heaven, but suggestively at someone off to the side, just behind the viewer. Other Saint Sebastian paintings are similar in the absence of religious symbols, including a work by Bernini. It was all so outrageous that many officials decried them for being blasphemous. It was pornographic. In the 1520s, Friar Bartolomeo painted a youthful Saint Sebastian for the Church of San Marco in Florence. The saint wears a tiny see-through loincloth. It looks like a small handkerchief. His right arm is raised, the left one behind his back, restrained, strapped to an invisible post. Two arrows pierce his left side, one in his neck, the other in his torso, just below his muscular chest. He stands in front of a painted alcove, his left foot extended. The shadows are rendered with such depth and artistry that it looks as if Sebastian is climbing out of the painting and into the church. The only other figure is that of a puto. A naked angel flying directly above Sebastian's head. The angel places a palm frond, a symbol of martyrdom, in Sebastian's raised right hand. The saint looks up at the angel in divine ecstasy. Bartolomeo's painting only hung in the church of San Marco for a short time. It was quickly removed by friars once they learned from the confessional that the image inspired impure thoughts from parishioners during mass. Head to the Saint Podcast Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter pages to see the image for yourself. In the 16th century, during the Reformation, the arrow scene was forbidden from being depicted in the Protestant North. The iconography of a naked young man in bondage was frowned upon, seen as another example of Catholic corruption by reformers like Martin Luther, who broke away from the Church in Rome. Flemish, Dutch, and German painters focused instead. On Irene and her maid nursing Sebastian back to health. This tableau of two women coming to the aid of a stranger was deemed a model of Protestant charity and neighborly love. Soon, however, even austere Protestant paintings morphed into the erotic. Sebastian became once again a half-naked youth, and so did Irene. Conversely, Irene's maid became crone-like, in stark contrast to the other two. In the 18th century, something else started happening in the Sebastian and Irene artworks. They were looking more and more like paintings of Jesus, depicting the moments right after his death. In these paintings, 
Christ's lifeless body has been lifted down from the cross, sometimes deposited into his tomb. His mother, the Virgin Mary, and a close follower, Mary Magdalene, hold him in mourning. In the Sebastian and Irene paintings, Sebastian looks as if he's been crucified, with his arms extended, tied to horizontal beams rather than to a post behind him. Plus, the arrows that once pierced his side are gone, leaving wounds in the same spot where a Roman legionnaire stabbed Christ with a spear. Figures of Irene and the maid replace Virgin Mary and the Mary Magdalene. They caress his body not to mourn him, but to nurse him back to health. Have a look at paintings by Vicente Lopez Portaña and Antonio Bellucci. At a quick glance, it's really difficult to tell if they're depictions of Sebastian or Christ. Sculptures of St. Sebastian tied to a post also started looking identical to sculptures of Christ at the column, a scene from when Christ was tied to a post and whipped just before the crucifixion. Examples of all these works are on St. Podcast's social media pages. St. Sebastian had transformed from a graying Roman warrior to a Greek god protecting mortals from disease. And now, like Christ, he seemed to be besting death itself. Sebastian is embraced by the outcast all over the world. In the San Sebastian district of Cusco in Peru, a festival takes place from the 18th to 20th of January. A variety of saints are paraded through the streets accompanied by indigenous dances and music that predate the arrival of Christianity. Saint Sebastian is the most popular of the saints. In Andean culture, he comes from the Antisuyu region of the Incan Empire. The Sebastian statue of the parade is dressed in gold like an indigenous king. A single golden arrow pierces him. Tropical foliage surrounds the saint, an Amazonian warrior rather than a Roman one. The people who have the honor of carrying the float do so barefoot to experience just a hint of Sebastian's suffering. Other revelers join the parade in elaborate costumes involving masks, half-llama, half-human features, and cross-dressing. Similar festivals are celebrated all over the Americas, from Texas to the Caribbean to Chile. In Puerto Rico, the parade includes cabezudos, giant papier-mâché masks that encircle the head. In all of these, figures from indigenous beliefs and modern pop culture accompany St. Sebastian, their leader. In Sicily, St. Sebastian festivals fill the summer. One of the most spectacular occurs in a village in Syracuse, which culminates in the scuta, or exit, of the St. Sebastian float, carried from the steps of the church to the townsfolk below. Everyone wears red and white, symbolizing blood from arrow wounds and purity. Naked babies are raised to the saint to be blessed and placed under his protection until death. All of this is accompanied by violent explosions of confetti and paper streamers of all colors called enzaredi. In the village of Piornol in western Spain, St. Sebastian's feast day is celebrated by throwing turnips at a man dressed in a colorful costume with a conical, horned monster mask called Haramplas. No one is quite sure how it all started and how long ago it began. It's been associated with St. Sebastian for so long that its history has been forgotten. Theories range from ancient Celtic rites 
to reenactments of the defeat of an infamous produce bandit. For many in the state of Kerala in India, Saint Sebastian is regarded as the most powerful saint of all. His feast day celebration in January is a major event. A priest from Saint Mary's Kanjur had this to say about Sebastian to a journalist who attended the 2019 event. Here among the parishioners, they will have more respect for Saint Sebastian than for Jesus or Mary. This is true not theologically, but practically in their heart at the effective level. Catholics in Kerala hold Jesus and the Virgin Mary in the highest regard, like royalty. Saint Sebastian is one of us. He's the one who will heal you, protect you from physical harm, and offer health and happiness in this mortal life rather than only in the afterlife. In many religions, deities that rule over disease also rule over death. That Sebastian recovered from his arrow wounds is like a resurrection, and celebrations honor him as a figure who thwarts death. The root of Saint Sebastian's widespread worship in Kerala can be traced to a smallpox outbreak in the 1950s. People prayed to an image of the saint whom they knew had protected Europeans during the Black Plague. The disease was controlled, and Saint Sebastian's cult in India was born. It proliferated especially among the poor, who are always the most badly affected by diseases and disasters. One of the largest Saint Sebastian festivals in Kerala occurs in Kanjur. For nine days, thousands gather around a shrine for continuous novenas. These are ritualistic prayers, often spoken in cycles, in which devotees implore for favors and make petitions while honoring a specific saint. Worshippers approach the shrine with homemade plates like circular shields, decorated with a Saint Sebastian emblem and a golden arrow, which the faithful take home as a blessing, then bring back the following day so it can be shared. Next are the parades. Again, indigenous dances, music, costumes, and legends mixed with Christian crosses and saints. A mass is held, then a massive fireworks display ends the night. The Saint Sebastian Festival in Kanjur is a celebration for everyone, no matter their station or religion. Delegations from other faiths are invited to planning sessions and meals, often participating in the ceremonies. With speeches and blessings from swamis, imams, and preachers from Protestant denominations. As a protector of outcasts, Saint Sebastian has been embraced by queer Christians since the 19th century. Many artists, writers, and musicians were inspired by Saint Sebastian's story. Someone who had to hide their identity or else risk certain persecution and the possibility of death. In 1871. Author Marcel Proust wrote the first novel in his seven-novel epic, *In Search of Lost Time*. A number of passages reference Saint Sebastian, including the description of the playboy Legrandin. His mouth, set in a bitter grimace, was the first to recover and smiled, while his eyes remained full of pain, like the eyes of a handsome martyr, whose body bristles with arrows. In 1877. A young Oscar Wilde paid a visit to the Palazzo Rosso in Genoa. A Saint Sebastian painting by Guido Reni made quite an impression on him, so much so that he referenced it in a sonnet he wrote about a visit to the grave of the English poet Keats. As I stood beside the mean grave of this divine boy, I thought of him as a priest of beauty slain before his time, 
and the vision of Guido St. Sebastian came before my eyes as I saw him at Genoa. A lovely brown boy with crisp, clustering hair and red lips, bound by his evil enemies to a tree and, though pierced by arrows, raising his eyes with divine, impassioned gaze towards the eternal beauty of the opening heavens. In 1897, Oscar Wilde began using the pseudonym Sebastian Melmoth. This was in reference to the saint, and also to the protagonist in the book, Melmoth the Wanderer, who sells his soul to the devil in order to live an extra 150 years. Adaptations of St. Sebastian's story multiply in the 20th century. Gabriel D'Annunzio's 1911 play, The Martyrdom of St. Sebastian, features a score by Claude Debussy. Thomas Mann's 1912 novella, Death in Venice, compares the object of the protagonist's obsessive affection to St. Sebastian. There's also Confessions of a Mask, a 1949 work by Japanese novelist Yukio Mishima. It's a coming-of-age story with a St. Sebastian painting as a key plot device that drives the narrative. In Tennessee Williams' play, Suddenly Last Summer, the main character is named after St. Sebastian. The play was adapted into a movie in 1959, starring Elizabeth Taylor, Catherine Hepburn, and Montgomery Clift as Sebastian. Of course, there's also the seminal 1976 film Sebastien by Derek Jarman, which turns the Sebastian legend into a tale of unrequited love. St. Sebastian is featured in another 1970s film, Brian De Palma's Carrie, based on the Stephen King novel. Carrie and her mother pray to a gruesome St. Sebastian shrine. The mother, played by Piper Laurie, dies from wounds identical to the Sebastian figure. And it's since the 1980s that St. Sebastian's modern following really grew, with gay Christians and the dispossessed turning to him for protection against the AIDS pandemic. LGBT Christians see themselves in St. Sebastian, a symbol of martyrdom itself, representing those who hide their identities, as well as the courage required to be true to themselves. Pop culture references from R.E.M.'s Losing My Religion to Muhammad Ali's Esquire cover shoot and Aquaria's runway look for RuPaul's Drag Race have all featured St. Sebastian as a misunderstood, persecuted figure. With the world in the grip of yet another pandemic, St. Sebastian is as relevant now as he was in medieval Europe. Many of his relics have been placed on constant display allowing modern-day pilgrims to find comfort from and protection against COVID-19, all whilst sanitizing their hands, wearing masks, and distancing. Whether St. Sebastian is a historic figure or not is irrelevant. Any symbol that offers comfort to those who suffer is powerful. Who better than a Praetorian prefect, a gay icon, the patron saint of pandemics and the misunderstood, to save us all? Thank you so much for listening to this episode about St. Sebastian. For images of the artworks and festivals mentioned, please have a look at the St. Podcast pages on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Feel free to follow us for updates. Special thanks to Brian Robinson, who read the passages from Marcel Proust and Oscar Wilde. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions for future episodes, please email saintpodcast at gmail.com. The word saint is spelled out, S-A-I-N-T. 
The next Saint Podcast episode is about a woman who defied a Roman governor, who was then swallowed by a dragon, and lived. Tune in to episode three of our martyr series to hear the story of Saint Margaret. <laughs>